So a few weeks ago we began to look at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and uh, the reason for doing that is, uh, is simply because it's the, perhaps the clearest explanation in Scripture of mankind's need of the gospel and uh, explanation of what the gospel is and the implications of the gospel uh, for the Christian life. And any church, I think, that wants to be a faithful biblical church with the gospel at its core uh, really needs to get a good grasp of the book of Romans. And, uh, and so we've uh, got to chapter, we finished chapter 3 the last time we looked at it, and uh, we're picking up on chapter 4, and let me just uh, read the first eight verses uh, of that chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So let me just remind you of the story so far. Uh, Paul, Paul is gripped by the gospel message. And uh, he wants to visit this church, uh, the, the Roman church. He's never been there, uh, but he plans to visit there uh, and to preach this gospel to them. And the reason that the gospel uh, grips Paul is because he has seen the power of God for the salvation uh, of, of all men. And uh, in order for his readers to grasp the beauty and the wonder of the gospel... He sets it against the backdrop of the human condition. Uh, rather like a jewel that glints against a dark cloth uh, in the jeweler's shop on the counter. And, uh, and the darkness of the human condition is perhaps summarized in chapter 1 verse 18. Where Paul says about all human beings, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, unright- and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so all through the rest of chapter 1, into chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he makes the case for the, the seriousness of man's condition. Not just for Jewish Unbelievers, but also for the for very uh, sorry non-Jewish unbelievers, but for very religiously minded Jews, and so he concludes in chapter three, verse ten. No one is quoting uh, from scripture here, Old Testament scripture. He says, "No one is righteous, no, not one. Nobody is righteousness is righteous." And the ultimate need of man whether he sees it or not, is righteousness. He needs to be right with God. 
Every individual needs to be made right with God. How can you get right with God? That's a big dilemma of the human condition. But it's the very thing that he cannot provide. Mankind cannot be righteous. No one is righteous. And once you have lost righteousness, you can't get it back by yourself. And so Paul lays the groundwork for this by painting the dark picture of the human condition. And then he gets to chapter 3, verse 21. And there's that famous word, but. (laughs) Uh, It's where everything suddenly spins round. It starts facing a different direction. It says, but the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is Paul moving from that dark picture of the state of human beings to the glorious effects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, we can have a righteousness that is not our own but actually comes through Jesus. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. So, so painfully simple. It seems to be so difficult for people to, to pick up. That we, we don't have righteousness. Where are we going to find it? We can't make it for ourselves. God provides it in Jesus Christ. You just have to come to Jesus to get it. And so when we look to verses 21 to 25... Uh, we find three things, that the origin of this righteousness is God and his free grace, that the ground of this righteousness is the blood of Jesus shed in his sacrificial death on the cross for us, and the means by which we obtain this righteousness is by faith in Jesus, by believing in Jesus, and we become righteousness. And so it's summarized in that great Reformation summary That righteousness is by grace alone, through in Christ alone, by faith alone. By grace alone, in Christ, through faith alone. And as we come to chapter 4, we find that Paul continues to develop his case. And what he's going to do now is is to demonstrate that righteousness has always been by faith. In the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament, righteousness has always been by faith. And that's our first point this this afternoon. Righteousness has always been by faith. We can see this in how Paul uses Old Testament examples to demonstrate his point. First of all, he mentions Abraham, uh, who lived over 2,000 years before Christ, and then Paul, uh, and Paul is going to look at Abraham through this chapter. And then in a kind of supporting role, if you like, in verse 6 and 7 and 8, um, he quotes from the Psalm of David, Psalm 32, who lived a thousand years before Christ. So 2,000 years before Christ, a thousand years before Christ, now with Christ, today, 2,000 years after Christ, has always been about faith. 
There's two reasons why Paul, I think, is, is looking at these Old Testament characters. One is a, a reason that is particular to the Jews in the, in the readership, in the congregation that he's writing to. Abraham, of course, was considered to be a father of the Jews. And so in, in Jewish eyes, even for Jewish converts to Christ, Abraham stands as, uh, as a great example, if not the greatest example of a godly man. But the, the other reason is a more general reason, and I think it's probably a more important reason, and it is to demonstrate that faith in God's promises has always been the way of righteousness. Faith in God's promises has always been the way of righteousness. But what Paul is saying here is not some novelty, that Paul is not appearing as a purveyor of a new religion that's is seeking to supplant Judaism as such. He's not bringing in some novelty. Now you might understand, get an idea of why the Gospel of Paul and the Gospel of Jesus might seem like a novelty. After all, most Jews in Paul's day had come to believe that righteousness was a matter of hard work, law-keeping, staying in the covenant community, Doing all the right things. And you can remember perhaps how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees uh, through the Gospels. That the Pharisees were very fastidious about keeping all the laws of the Torah, the Old Testament, the, the, the book of Moses, books of Moses, and all the uh, secondary laws that they put in place to make sure you didn't get anywhere near breaking those uh, scriptural laws. They had a whole cloud of other laws trying to keep you away and so righteousness became a hard exacting work and you, so you can imagine that to, to the Jew as Paul comes along as, with this gospel message you can imagine them thinking to themselves Paul is preaching something different something new a novelty And for some Jews, perhaps, the, the idea that the gospel is, uh, that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ alone, that seems uh, just a little bit too easy. Uh, that's quite a common attitude today, I think. Uh, a lot of people think this. You know, you, if you do good, then God, if he exists, has to accept you. You've been a good person. I think I've been a good person uh, why wouldn't God accept me? That's the way people think. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and the line is always below where I am. <laughs> and Hitler's in there, and Pol Pot, and I don't know, Stalin, or whoever, Mao, all of these people. But I'm above those people, so I, I'm, I'm okay. So if you come to people like that and you say, even bad people can go to heaven if they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that many good people might actually go to hell. You know, people in civic society could be good people and do good things. Make good use of the common grace things we were talking about this morning. And do good things for other people, but they could still go to hell 
Because they're rejecting the way of salvation that God has provided. Now, if you pre- present that to people, you have a kind of self-righteous view of salvation. If I'm a good person, then I get to. He- if you're a good person, you get to heaven. Then the gospel can be particularly hard to take. It's just too easy. But Paul, he wants to show, he wants to show his readers, and he wants to show us, that if we read our Bibles carefully, righteousness has always been by faith. The righteousness we get from God has always been by faith. The righteousness that avails with God always comes to us through faith. And that the whole idea is biblical through and through. Faith, wherever you find it in the Bible, is counted to us as righteousness. And notice that the faith that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not just a vague, general, slightly positive disposition towards God or towards a higher power or some vague notion of faith. This is specifically faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, even in the Old Testament. How's that the case? Do you remember Jesus speaking to the the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8? He says something really fascinating about Abraham. Jesus said, John 8, 56, Your father... Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Even Abraham saw Jesus. He could see something of Jesus in the promises of God. There was sufficient revelation in the Old Testament about a Savior who would come that even Abraham could see him from a distance. See, even in the Old Testament, faith in Christ saved you. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, our doctrinal standards, in chapter 7, paragraph 5, says this, that in the Old Testament, there were, quote, promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types of, and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. All of that picture language, all of the prophecies, all of the, uh, the signals and indications in the Old Testament are there to point people forward to Jesus Christ. And that true faith could come even in the Old Testament. And so what Paul is doing here is he is introducing Abraham uh, to show that he is not coming with, as a, some kind of snake oil sal- salesman riding into town and selling a dud, pro- a dud product, a new quick fix religious scheme. But rather he's showing that faith in Jesus Christ has always been the way of getting right with God, even in the Old Testament. Old Testament and New Testament. There's nothing new. Well, that's what Paul discovered on the Damascus Road. He'd been misreading the Old Testament. And he discovered that it was all about Christ. <clears throat> now I suspect 
that this is a new idea even for some Christians. The idea that even in the Old Testament, righteousness came by faith. I suspect that's a new idea even for some Christians. It may be for you this, this afternoon. You see, there are some Christians who don't read their Old Testament because they don't believe it's about the gospel. Uh, and there are, some, there are actually some Christians who don't seem to read their Bibles at all. Yeah, I constantly come across people who, who don't know about passages that I think they ought to know about because they don't read their Bibles. And the way that they think about the Old Testament, the reason that they don't read the Old Testament at least, is... Because they think the Old Testament is about the law, rules, regulations, genealogies we're looking at this morning. And they think that salvation in the Old Testament was by some other way than the gospel. Uh, Even our genealogy this morning was about the gospel. I hope you realize that. (laughs) As we're looking at Genesis chapter 10. And and if if you think that about the Old Testament, that's just about rules and regulations and strange genealogies and so on. Then, of course, why would you read it? Why would you bother? Why is it relevant to us? Maybe except for a few prophecies and maybe a few moral examples that we could follow, perhaps. But Paul's point here is that the way of salvation for men and women, whether in the Old Testament times or the New Testament times, is by faith. By faith in God. By faith in God's promises. The promises that point forward to Jesus Christ. So it's always been about faith. And I hope you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's being counted to you as righteousness. But the other side to this, and this is the second thing I want to talk about, is, is that salvation or righteousness, righteousness is not by human achievement. This is the other side of the coin. It's not by human achievement. Righteousness cannot be earned, nor can it come through certain human qualifications. Um, it's not, sometimes people think it's not just about what you do, but who you are. But I'm, I'm, I'm in a special position, so I, I, therefore I deserve to be blessed by God. And sometimes as People think, well, okay, I accept it's a little bit by, maybe it's a bit by faith, but surely good works can help me get on God's good side. And we still try and find a way of, of, of bringing good works in somehow. But Paul says emphatically not. Look at verse 2, we're only verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, Paul is building a little picture here. Uh, And he's suggesting that supposing Abraham was good enough and that he was justified by his good works, what would that mean? Well, you know, you can just imagine when he dies, he could get to heaven and he could be able to take a a lap of honor around heaven, you know, and say, hooray me, I have done good, all my good works and, and go to all the other people in heaven and say, look at me, I've made it, look at all the things I've done and all the things I've achieved and I've got there. And he could boast before all of heaven. Now look how Paul finishes the sentence. But not before God. (laughs) 
not before God. Why not? Well, read about Abraham. Read about it. About him from Genesis 12 onwards. He's one of the great heroes of the Bible, isn't he? One of the great figures in, in Scripture. Yeah. As a young boy, I remember, I remember reading the Bible and thinking, and a school teacher, uh, those were the days when school teachers still read the Bible first thing in the morning before we started our lessons. And uh, we'd read about Abraham. And he's one of the great heroes of the faith. And you, you went away thinking, he's a great hero of the faith, sort of thing. Then, you come to, then when I got converted at age 17, I started actually reading the Bible, realized... Oh, hang on a minute, he's a sinner. <laughs> he sinned, he failed. Uh, do, you, do you remember the first sin that we come across in Genesis 12 is that he, sells a, he, he tells his wife to lie about the fact that he's married to him so that he, he can save his own skin. And he puts his wife at risk of being taken by a king, Abimelech. Do you know... He may have been a friend of God, as James described him, but he was no paragon of virtue. And therefore, before God, there would be no lapse of honor in heaven. There would be no taking all the applause for all the good works that he had done. Rather, if he were dependent upon his works, he would be flat on his face, Utterly bereft of any hope before God. See, remember this. No one is righteous. No, not one. Abraham will have nothing to boast about. So this afternoon, what about you? Do you have anything to boast about before God? How do you think of yourself before God? I won't have anything to boast about. Of before God will you be able to boast I hope not I don't think you will and I hope you won't try Abraham is justified through faith in God not by his works well what does this faith do let's, let's move on to thirdly uh, and see how faith is counted as righteousness this is in verse 3 now what, is, what does the scripture say Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is Paul now speaking about Abraham, and he quotes here from Genesis 15, verse 6. And you may remember this story in Genesis 15. Uh, God has made promises to Abraham about his family and his offspring, but he's got no children. And the problem is that he can't have children. He and Sarah uh, can't have children. Sarah is barren. She can't. Uh, her womb is closed, as it were. And to make the point of the promise, God takes Abraham out in the midst of this terrible situation where he can't have children. And he gets him to look up into the sky at night time. And uh, gets him to count the stars if he can. You ever tried to count the stars when all the lights are off? It's impossible. And then God says, that's how many your offspring are going to be. That's how many your offspring are going to be. And at that point... Although all his all of all the biology didn't seem to be against him, he believed God and His promise, and at that point, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the point is that 
This righteousness that comes, comes by a free gift. It's God who gives the righteousness. And it's really important we get this. There's a subtle mistake that people can make. And that is to treat faith as though it was some kind of work. That in itself deserves God's approval. Have you ever heard people say that? Um, you know, my, my faith becomes my righteousness. It becomes a work. Um, and, and it's a very subtle thing. Uh, sometimes it can overtake us by accident almost if we're not thinking carefully about what we're saying and what we're thinking. Uh, where you become a little bit proud of your faith and you want to boast in heaven about that and take a, a lap of honor uh, about your faith. And there's a subtle switch that happens sometimes where you're actually putting faith in your faith. You see, the whole point of faith is it's, uh, Ian Hamilton, you always talk, use big words, and he says, it's extrospective. It looks outwards from what ourselves to something else. Faith looks to Christ and puts faith in Christ, and it's Christ that does the saving. But there's a subtle, this subtle shift that sometimes happens when we begin to look inwardly, introspectively, and we begin to say, well, I have faith, and therefore that is what saves me. As though my faith is what's doing the work, doing the heavy lifting of my salvation. What's going on here is you say, yes, I believe, and I believe that I'm believing. And therefore I must be justified. Well, that's actually not what the Bible says at all. You've secretly fallen back. If you do that, you've secretly fallen back into the life of, of resting on qualifications that you find within yourself. For which you expect God to reward you. And it's a dangerous thing. And it's a pervasive thing. How many times have you heard people uh, being interviewed on TV perhaps? And how they've, on the news or something like that, and some terrible thing has happened in their life. And, and often, they, and no doubt they've been helped greatly as Christians through that difficult time. But what they tend to say is, my faith helped me through this difficult time. You see what's happening there? I'm putting my faith in my faith that has helped me. Where's Christ in all of that? Oh, we need Christians who are willing to be able to say to unashamedly, Christ helped me through this. The Lord Jesus Christ helped me through this. My great God helped me through this. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith says. Simply saying my faith helped me through this is simply putting faith in your works. Well, Paul really wants us to see the problem with all these kinds of personal qualifications by using an example in verse 4. And Paul says here, uh, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Uh, of course, that's obvious, isn't it? When you work, you deserve your pay. You can demand it. You give me what you owe me. Now, that's what you say to your employer, I hope. Uh, if you don't get your pay in time, you say, give me what you owe me. And you're quite right to do so. But your wages are not a gift. You've earned them. But this righteousness is by faith. It's a gift freely given to all those who trust God for it. And it's a gift that, 
that not even your faith deserves. Otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. But it's through faith that God gives this free gift of righteousness. And that's the thrust uh, of, of verse 5. And to the one who does not work but trusts in him who just, justifies the ungodly, this faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I wonder if you spotted something really quite staggering in the middle of that verse there. God is the God who justifies the ungodly. It's not even the main clause of the sentence. God is the God who justifies the ungodly. It's a subordinate clause, but its implications are pretty profound. Uh, do you remember when the idea of ungodliness came up? It came up in chapter 1, verse 18. We read it earlier. And for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But this is the place where God, Paul spells out, spells out what this ungodliness is, in chapter 1 verse 18, is a denial of God in spite of all that has been revealed in creation about God, leading to all kinds of behavior that is morally degrading and damaging to society. It's man sticking up his two fingers to God. Or as somebody once eruditely put it, um, you know, 20% of a wave to God. Think about it. Doing things my way. I took a funeral once uh, at a local crematorium. And uh, what happens is the, you know, you're, you're waiting your turn. You get half an hour slot. And you wait your turn in the vestry. And, you're, and one of the things that you have to plan for is uh, the, the queuing up of all the music that's going to come. So I could, I could look ahead and see all the music that was queued up for the, the funeral that was going to come after the one I was conducting. And the first song in the funeral after the one I was conducting was My Way by Frank Sinatra. And, uh, you know, it's the most, one of the most, I think it is the, the most popular song that is played at funerals in the United Kingdom. I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think that I did that, all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. That's the state of things in the United Kingdom today. I do things my way, not God's way. And even in death, I went to boast how I did things my way. And is that not the root of our ungodliness? And it's that root that is bringing the wrath of God upon mankind. Ungodliness. But look again at chapter 4, verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. This ungodliness that says, I did it my way. Yet God is still at work justifying the ungodly. This is a God who justifies and declares righteous the ungodly. He is 
It is God who, in spite of man's condition and attitude, offers the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. And it can be anyone's if only they would put their faith in God and put their faith in Jesus Christ and his blood. That's what happened to Abraham. And David found it too. And Paul quotes David in Psalm 32 to show what happens when God counts a person as righteous. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. You see the gospel there? Forgiveness of sins. Sins not being counted against you. There's a big list of charges that could be brought out of your life and my life. But none of that list is counted against you or I when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And actually, it's all counted against Jesus. And instead of wallowing in your sin, you get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So as we finish in a few seconds, are you doing things your way? Or will you do things his way? Will you stop boasting? Will you stop working to earn God's approval? Will you stop trusting in your own faith and simply receive Christ by faith and rest on him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the glory of the gospel. Oh Lord, it's so simple. And our sinful human hearts find it hard to take that we could simply come to Christ. But we recognize also that in coming to Christ in the way that he requires, covering all of our sins by his grace, we recognize that Jesus Christ owns all of us, every single last part of us. And that scares us. Father, we pray you help us to overcome our fears and to fully trust in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.